Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. You've all heard the, uh, uh, the characterizations of the Hoover, of Hoover versus Roosevelt as presidents. The standard version that was, that was popular for a long time, Hoover is this do-nothing president who, uh, sort of Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned and, uh, and then uh, uh, you know, much deserved his defeat in 1932. And then FDR wrote in as the man on the white horse who restored, uh, uh, restored confidence and brought, uh, brought the economy back and ultimately led the, uh, uh, the United States to victory in World War II. And you may have also heard uh, the, uh, uh, the conservative version that said that, uh, well, that, that Hoover fought bravely uh, to defend, the, uh, the, to defend American liberty, uh, but in the end, the storm of uh, irrationality was too great for him, and that FDR, the slick, uh, the slick campaigner, beat him out and, uh, and, and, and brought a sort of socialism to the United States. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's a great deal of mythology, I think, in, in both of these. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it can't be denied that Herbert Hoover has gone down in history as the archetype of the bad president. I remember in the 19, uh, 1992 campaign, Tom Harkin referred to, uh, to Bush as George Herbert Hoover Bush. And it was the, you know, the worst thing you could say about a, about a president is he's like Herbert Hoover. Um, on the other hand, uh, uh, FDR is seen as, as, as perhaps the, the, the greatest, I mean, generally, the historians rate him as second only to, uh, to Lincoln. Um, so my question that I'll throw out, just to see, sort of get your thoughts on this, is why this is the case. Why is, why is Hoover thought of as, a, as such a horrible president? Why is FDR thought of as such a great one? So, so it, was, it, was, it was simply circumstances that were beyond the control of either one. Hoover happened to be the guy who was there when it hit. FDR happened to be the guy who was there when it went away. Hoover didn't take radical enough measures to alleviate it. Okay, Hoover was not prepared to take, take the radical steps that were required. Measures didn't lead to the Depression. World War II did. So I would argue that FDR, his plan may or may not work. Okay. The, all right. The, the, uh, the, that FDR was fortunate enough, as, as Harchie Murphy used to say, God in his infinite mercy give us wars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also is, is that the Depression was still reaching its apex. And so while Hoover was in, I mean, it hadn't reached the pinnacle, the lowest part. So he's, he's going to get, and he wasn't there for the. <laughs> To recovery, so they're going to get blamed for it. No matter who's in, who's in power, they're going to be Melissa Carter. Okay. Blamed for it. Okay. So this is uh, the uh, lucky stiff uh, uh, interpretation. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's, it has a great deal of uh, longevity. Pat. Well, Hooper did a lot of things and the tax cut and all sorts of Uh-huh. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, that, that, that's a, a, a very important point that Hoover actually did a great deal that, that was soon forgotten, that, that most of that was, was forgotten. And it's only in recent years uh, that, that there's been this rehabilitation of Hoover. A partial rehabilitation, I grant you, but, but, but a, a rehabilitation nonetheless. Scott? Yeah. One fact is Roosevelt's your tenure in office. Okay. Uh, it, what, is that a, uh, a symptom or a, uh, a, or, or a, a, that's not where I want to go. Is that a cause or a consequence? I think it's, uh, as far as being Roosevelt being remembered as a better president, uh, you know, that in the Second World War, of course, and Sheer Lincoln was, was in office almost 16 years. Okay, so uh, on the one hand, this is empirically, he must have been a good president because why else would he have been elected on four occasions? On the other hand, you could say, well, anyone who had that that much time in office is bound to have some good, uh, bound to have some some things redound to his benefit. Yes, and uh, is where it, would it be that people expected something different from Hoover from his past history? and expectations for FDR were closer to being met than like expectations were for Hoover? Okay, yeah, yeah. Meeting expectations has got to be counted as an extremely important part of this because Herbert Hoover was exactly the kind of guy you would have wanted to have as president when, when a national crisis struck. There was a, a very influential book. I, I think this book is, is actually was, was the, the foundation on which the Hoover rehabilitation was born. It was Joan Hoff Wilson's book, uh, uh, Herbert Hoover, Forgotten Progressive. He was a progressive. He was, in some ways, the, the epitome of the progressive movement of, 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 of people like uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. He was the nonpartisan professional. He was above politics. He was known for his, for his competence not for being a, a, a great politician. Heck, no one knew what party he belonged to until 1920. Uh, many people said, oh, this is, the, this is the great best guy in national life today. This guy ought to be president. Guess who one of the people who said that was? Franklin D. Roosevelt said, he's terrific. We need this guy in politics. Neither side, I mean, both sides made pitches to him in 1919 saying, you want to run for president on our ticket in 1920? It was only then that he revealed I'm a Republican, and he let himself get into a few primaries, and uh, uh, his candidacy didn't really go anywhere. Hoover wasn't all that interested in 1920 in being president anyway. Scott, did you want to? No, I was just going to say it's Roosevelt and Hart Cody made that remark. Yes, right, right. So, so people thought that this is this is the ideal. This is what this is what progressive politics has been leading to all along. The guy who stands above parties who doesn't get down in the dirty business of partisan politics. He is simply a competent administrator. He is highly trained. He knows how to run things, to make the trains run on time. Uh, cla classic case of a self-made man. Hoover was, uh, or, or might say, a natural aristocracy. He came, from, uh, he came from a small town in Iowa. He was orphaned at a young age, managed to go to the new Stanford University, and, uh, and, and made, it was a self-made millionaire. Got involved, it was in, and then got involved in public service. It was known for running famine relief in World War I extremely effectively. So he, you know, he, was, he was easily the most, uh, the, the, most, uh, the most, let's say, highly esteemed American in the world after you know, Wilson's star started to fade uh, in, in, uh, in 1919. Everyone was looking to Hoover as this, uh, as this great savior. But after all, what we learned from Hoover, 
that it takes a lot more than being a competent administrator to be president. No matter what the, the progressives have been saying, to be a good president, you have to be a good politician. And Herbert Hoover was a horrible politician. The presidency was Herbert Hoover's first elected office. He didn't go the normal route, you know, either through Congress or, or through being governor of a, uh, a governor of a state. And in some way, it's, it's, Hoover had definite ideas of what the presidency should be. He wasn't a throwback to Gilded Age presidents who were content to sit and let Congress take, uh, take the lead. He came to office with a program. In fact, in the first year of his presidency, he called, called a special session of Congress. And he said, okay, here are the things I'd like to have acted on. Agricultural reform, tariff reduction, tax reform, conservation, government reorganization. A lot of things that, that in fact, FDR would be known for. Hoover said, okay, this is stuff I want you to do. But his idea of the presidency stopped short of being a leader in Congress. So, okay, once the stuff's in Congress, then... It's their business. I, don't, I, uh, I just wait to see what they do. And of course, like Taft, Hoover got rolled on things, especially on things like tariff reform. He proposed, he proposed a, a tariff in the idea of protecting agriculture. He got a tariff that, he got smooth holly, the, the, the tariff that is probably the most infamous tariff in American history. Yeah? This reminds me a little of uh, Jimmy Carter in that, um, he had good ideas, but couldn't get Congress to pass them. Even though he had a Democratic Congress, a lot of it, I mean, even Tip O'Neill used to say that you know, he just didn't want to schmooze with politicians, and that's part of it. Hoover and Carter, there, there's, there are a number of, of, of parallels, right? Both engineers, both came to the office with a reputation of, uh, of, 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 uh, of, of competence, and then they realized that, well, I mean, Carter was, Carter was, a, was a better politician. Um, Everyone knew who Hoover was years before he became president. Nobody knew Carter's name until until all of a sudden, hey, he's got the nomination. Uh, but but still, there are, there are a lot of comparisons that can be made between these uh, 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 between these guys. They didn't know how to manage the, manage Congress, even when they had comfortable their parties had comfortable majorities. Didn't know how to work with them. So Hoover would dump stuff on them and say, here, do this, and and and, and then. He said, okay, my, that's, that's where my job ends. Now I wait to see what they do. Hoover had a, a vision of the presidency, uh, or the president as a facilitator. Okay? The, the president was the guy who was going to bring together the various interests. And he wrote about this even before he became president, uh, before he became president how we're going to get representatives of labor and management together and we're going to get them talking. We're not going to come down on either side necessarily. We just want to be the facilitator that brings them together. So get labor, agriculture, industry, civic organizations. These are going to solve national problems. There's this uh, line that always come, came back to haunt Hoover. Uh, I believe it may have been I think it was, it was on the campaign trail. He said that while we're on the verge of abolishing poverty, right, everything's going so well. There's still problems out there, but that's what government's for. We're going to tweak things. We're good progressives. We're the managers who are going to who are going to run things. Things are going to be or in general going well. The economy's booming, but we can see we can hope to see within our lifetimes perhaps the abolition of of ancient evils like poverty. And of course, everyone oh yeah. 
Mr. Confident Hoover, who ended up presiding over, of course, a huge surge in poverty. Um, an example of, of this uh, this idea of the president as as facilitator, you can find it in the uh, in the binder in, in, in Hoover's address to Congress, calling for a uh, for the creation of a federal farm board. He says here at the bottom of uh, at the bottom of page 17, the last full paragraph, the most progressive movement in all agriculture has been the upbuilding of the farmers' own marketing organizations which now embrace nearly 2 million farmers in membership and annually distribute nearly 2.5 uh, billion worth of farm, farm products. Co-op? Is that the co-op? The, the, the whole co-op movement. This was, this was vintage Hoover. This is the stuff he liked. Voluntary organizations, and now the president will do what he can to aid these organizations, these thousand points of light, you might call them, and, uh, and, 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 and that would be sufficient, right? The government can tweak things through working through it with voluntary arrangements. Uh, he says in the, in, the, in the previous paragraph what he does not want this farm board to do. This is also instructive because you'll hear rhetoric very similar when after the Depression hit. Certain vital principles must be adhered to in order that we may not undermine the freedom of our farmers and of our people as a whole by bureaucratic and governmental domination and interference. We must not undermine initiative. There should be no fee or tax imposed upon the farmer. No governmental agency should engage in the buying and selling and price fixing of products, for such courses can lead only to bureaucracy and domination. So he has clear limits on what he thinks uh, uh, the, 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 the president or government in general ought to do. Now, as I've already said, the fundamental problem for Hoover was that he wasn't a politician. He knew it. That was his. That was his appeal. We don't want a politician. That was Carter's appeal too, right? He was actually Carter was a, a far more skillful politician than anyone gave him credit for. He was a skillful enough politician to make people think he wasn't a politician at a time when everyone hated politicians. Walter Lippmann, in a very memorable phrase, said that Hoover had little tolerance for quote the normal irrationality of democracy. And he doesn't understand that not that not ever not all politics can be figured out like a, a geometrical equation. Here's the engineer, and he can't do it. He can't deal with it with politics. In fact, he looked on politicians with scorn. This is why Hoover hated FDR. He thought he thought this guy was a lightweight. Like, that's what he thought of most politicians. They're not really smart. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have the training. And they're just appealer demagogues who play to the crowd. Well, this attitude would actually uh, be devastating when America faced the Depression. Because at its heart, the Depression wasn't a mathematical problem to be solved. A lot of the Depression was about irrationality. And only by understanding irrationality could, could, could anyone hope to, uh, uh, to do anything about it. FDR understood it a little better, but still he didn't, uh, uh, still he didn't get it. I'll get to that later. So, you know, there's this conventional wisdom of Hoover being some laissez-faire ideologue. I, I think that's, that's way off base. FD, uh, Hoover actually did, did quite a bit. Hoover was, was essentially trying to take the business cycle, you know, the old boom-bust cycle, and, and stamp it flat using the resources of, of government that he had at his disposal. So one of the first things he did after the, uh, uh, after the crash in 29 was got the Federal Reserve to, to resume a cheap money policy. 
pumping about about $300 million into the economy in the course of a week. Certainly, this is going to do it. Now more money's out there, and then people, things are going to get back to normal. No. So he got together with business leaders. Again, classic Hoover. If we sit down, we can talk about it like rational people, we can work things out. He got all these business leaders that promise not to lay anybody off. In fact, you know, for, for a while, unemployment was, uh, the unemployment, or at least employment by these major corporations remained steady. It tended to be in small businesses that people were getting, uh, were, were getting laid off. Hoover ran up the largest peacetime deficit the country had ever seen up to that point, $2.2 billion. You probably heard the stories of how FDR on the campaign trail made a big deal about how he was going to balance the budget once he became, he became president. This, is, this has led to a sort of a, I don't know if conspiracy theory is the right word, but uh, uh, say, look, see, that's how he became president. He snookered the American people. He told them he was going to be a, a conservative. But, you know, if you were paying attention to what FDR was saying on the campaign trail, you realized that he had a more expansive version of government. Um, how that fit in with the need to, uh, to balance the budget remains to be seen. Perhaps the biggest contribution of Herbert Hoover was the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which, he, which was established in 1932. Well, and, and the binder in, uh, in page 48. He uses language here that was very characteristic of Hoover. Uh, the third paragraph down. Combating a depression is indeed like a great war in that it is not a battle upon a single front, but upon many fronts. These measures are all a necessary addition to the efficient and courageous efforts of our citizens throughout the nation. Okay? The initiative is going to come from the citizens. We're just going to be helping out. Our people, through voluntary measures and through state and local action, are providing for distress. Through the organized action of employers, they are securing distribution of employment and thus mitigating the hardships of the Depression. Through the mobilization of national credit associations, they are aiding the country greatly. Our duty is to supplement these steps to make their efforts more fruitful. Two things that come through here. One I just mentioned, the idea that we're going to, have, we're going to still be relying on, on, on voluntary action. But this allusion to war. Hoover does this many times, and FDR would take that up as well, that this is the equivalent of war. I don't know, how many of you have seen a book called Crisis and Leviathan by, uh, by Robert Higgs? Very interesting. It's, he's trying to explain why government grew so much in the 20th century, and he said that ultimately it was either actual war or attempts to say that there was war. Right? So if you, if you couldn't get an actual war going, you would say, well, so that such and such is the moral equivalent of war. As, uh, as, as Jimmy Carter said. Or you declare a war on poverty. If you can't have a war against uh, Germany or Japan, you can have a war on poverty. And whenever this happened, here is what you might, here is the, a certain level of, of government growth. Then you have a war, government really gets big, but then, there's, then the war ends and it drops off, but there is what Higgs calls the, calls the ratchet effect. It doesn't go down as far as it was here, it just goes to about here. And then you have another crisis and then goes down again, and that's sort of the pattern. Uh, there, there are problems with Higgs' analysis, but, it's, a, but it's, a, it's an interesting one. So Hoover very consciously uses the analogy of war, and FDR would do so, uh, would do so as well, long before he would have an actual war. 
Uh, Hoover, it's off, what's often forgotten about Hoover is all the public works projects that he got the government involved in. San Francisco Bay Bridge, Los Angeles Aqueduct, the dam which would eventually be called the Hoover Dam. And in fact, he would have spent even more had Congress let him. What's often forgotten is that the democratically controlled Congress of 1930 to 32 was, or 31 to 32, was stopping him from spending more money. Congress was horrified by the deficit, hence FDR's campaign promise to get it, to, to get it cut. And in 1932, Congress passed the largest peacetime tax increase in American history, which certainly didn't help recovery any. So there are some who have argued that what we see in, in Hoover's presidency was really the origins of the New Deal itself. Here's a quote for the, uh, from Hoover in August of 1932. We might have done nothing. That would have been utter ruin. Instead, we met the situation with proposals to private business and to Congress of the most gigantic program of economic defense and counterattack ever involved in the history of the Republic. Again, here's the war analogy. For the first time in the history of depression, dividends, profits, and the cost of living have been reduced before wages have suffered. Some of the reactionary economists urged that we should allow the liquidation to take its course until we had found bottom. We determined that we would not follow the advice of the bitter end liquidationists, and see the whole body of debtors in the U.S. brought to bankruptcy and the savings of our people brought to destruction." Unquote. So in August 1932, here's Herbert Hoover saying, look at all the great stuff we've done. I am proud of what I have done as, uh, as president. All these things have never been done before. And it's true. It's only in comparison to FDR that Hoover looks like a do-nothing president. Compared to any president that came before him, certainly in peacetime, Hoover is, 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 is a classic uh, progressive. Right? He out-progressives, in some ways, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and, uh, and certainly in Taft and, and Woodrow Wilson. He did a lot more. Of course, there were things he wouldn't do. The bonus bill. Uh, I'll skip over that. Muscle Shoals, page 40. The whole question of what's going to happen to this complex of dams on the Tennessee River. He says in the, in the third paragraph, this bill raises one of the most important issues confronting our people. That is squarely the issue of federal government ownership and operation of power and manufacturing business, not as a minor byproduct, but as a major purpose. Don't get the federal government engaged in actual business. We don't want to compete with business. We want to be there to help business. <coughs> And then, as he says on page 53 and 54 about the emergency relief bill, this the, the relief bill was designed to say the Reconstruction of Finance Corporation, instead of just giving money to banks and insurance companies and railroads, should now get involved in direct relief. He says the expansion of authority, if the, in the last paragraph on the page, this expansion of authority of the Reconstruction Corporation would mean loans against security for any conceivable purpose on any conceivable security to anybody who wants money. It would place the government in private business in such a fashion as to violate the very principle of public relations upon which we have builded our nation. 
Uh, and, then, and then further on, on 54, this proposal violates every sound principle of public finance and of government. Never before has so dangerous a suggestion been seriously made to our country. Never before has so much power for evil been placed at the unlimited discretion of seven individuals. That is the board of directors of the RFC. Okay, so that's where he draws the line. And it's a line that FDR was, uh, uh, would not draw, as Todd pointed out, Didn't, would not do the kind of radical measures uh, that, uh, that FDR would. And then, of course, to top everything off, the banks started collapsing. By the end of 1932, over 5,000 banks had closed their doors, the banking system at a virtual standstill. Well, this doesn't help, you know, as pe many people pointed out, it doesn't look good to be president when there's 25% employment and 5,000 banks are closed across the country. By 1932, Herbert Hoover was probably the most hated man in the country, right? This is the guy who came to power. People thought he could walk on water when he became president. He's the great engineer, the miracle man. In 1932, you know, people are calling newspapers Hoover blankets. And you know what a Hoover flag is? This was the, the Hoover flag, the empty pocket turned inside out. The Hoovervilles, of course, the shanty towns constructed. Hoover became the living symbol of the Depression. This is a very important aspect of Herbert Hoover. He wasn't Mr. Fun and Games. Even when things were good, he hadn't been. Right? He was known for his seriousness. People liked that about him. He was serious. He was the, he was the, he was the engineer, again. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but in reading these selections from Hoover, it sounds an awful lot, almost word for word, than some of the things Ronald Reagan said. Sure. But yeah, that worked for him because he was a politician. Because uh, he, he was better, uh, he was better at selling the idea. Perhaps. A similar circumstance. Then a lot of these things, I mean, tax cuts and let private industry take care of itself, et cetera, et cetera, and keep government out, worked for him. Sure. Banks weren't collapsing, but there was certain similarities. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 I think in the details there were serious differences between. Uh, well, okay, there were, there were uh, uh, when Hoover said, Here's, here are the things I won't do, he sounded a lot like Reagan. When he said the things that he would do, it could be, it, it, that, that, that might not always fall into line with, uh, with, with Reagan. I mean, uh, you would never have heard Herbert Hoover say government is the problem. He would just say that there are certain things that government should stay out of, but, 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 but the, the Herbert Hoover of, uh, of the 1920s was all in favor of government solutions to certain, uh, to certain problems. In fact, you know what, what Herbert Hoover was before he was president? He was Secretary of Commerce under, under Harding and Coolidge. In an age that was not known for government spending, in fact, every, every cabinet department saw its budget slashed in the 1920s, except for the Department of Commerce. Harding was personally very impressed by him. Uh, uh, he, Harding called him the, the smartest geek I ever met. <laughs> um, Coolidge, who in general was a better judge of character, said that man has given me uh, has given me a, a unsolicited advice for the past six years, all of it bad. <laughs> but still, he was you know he, he ran on because he was so popular, and so he was, he was pretty much that the, the attitude of the Coolidge administration was well. Let, let, let Hoover do what he wants. The people love him, and he doesn't seem to be causing all that much trouble. Um, and you know, if you go to the, the Hoover Library in uh, West Branch, Iowa, 
Well, if you ever need to have an excuse to do research there, go. They're so nice. They're so helpful. Because one of these underused libraries. You go to the FDR library in Hyde Park. They don't have the time of day for you. you go to the Hoover Library, they'll, they'll give you stuff. And I got a whole, I got a whole set of his, uh, uh, of, of all of Hoover's public, the, 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 sort of the six-volume set of the public papers of the presidents. They gave me the entire set for Herbert Hoover. You know, that's like, like several hundred dollars because they had extras. They said, ah, here you go. You don't work on Hoover. Yeah. Like that. You don't get treated like that at the LBJ library. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but Hoover became the living symbol of the Depression. He, literally, he was depressed. And he, he wasn't out there. Well, he was saying, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Everything's fine. You didn't see him smiling when he said that. Right? Ooh, this is good. I remember the cabinet said that uh, he stopped wanting to, he hated going to the White House anymore because uh, he wanted to stay away to escape, quote, the ever-present feeling of gloom that pervades everything connected with this administration. This guy added, I don't remember that there has been a joke cracked in a single cabinet meeting in the last year and a half. And what's a meeting without a joke thrown in every, uh, every now and again? And then, of course, there was the Bonus Army on top of all this. You all know the story of the Bonus Army, fabled and sung story, usually overly dramatized. You hear stories about you know, little boys wanting to save their pet rabbits, getting bayoneted, and uh, little babies getting tear gas. Well, there was tear gas involved. Um, but, uh, uh, but really, what, what this would not necessarily, perhaps, perhaps it would have reflected badly on Hoover in any case. Uh, but he made it worse at the end by saying, thank God we still have a government that knows how to deal with a mob. And that didn't help his, uh, his PR any. <laughs> well, that's Hoover. But there's all, there are all these, con these, uh, these, these contrasts made between uh, Hoover and FDR and how and as they were riding together in, the, uh, in the, uh, uh, the open limousine during the inaugural parade. Uh, there was a caricature drawn this. Maybe you've seen it. And here's Hoover, but then there's, there's FDR with this cigarette holder jauntily coming out from his square jaw and just waving to the crowd. And the comparison, the guy going out was uh, like, it was like sitting in a bath of ink, what someone said, uh, describing being around Hoover. Uh, and then, and then there's, this, there's the sunny FDR. Everything's going to be fine. Dr. Feelgood. Oh. What I think is interesting about FDR is how conservative he really was. And I, and I, and I mean that in, the, in the, the Burkean sense of conservative. Um, he, he came to power at a time when the, very, the most fundamental aspects of the United States were under question. I mean, I, I have gone into, gone into the literature on this. I read articles in popular magazines from the time that were saying, quite seriously, look, the Constitution was fine for its day, back when you know, people owned their own farms and there wasn't much uh, industry and people didn't live in cities, but it's completely irrelevant to the 20th century and its modern problems. They weren't talking about amending the Constitution. They were talking about scrapping the Constitution. Okay? You had people on the left who were looking to the Soviet Union as the great model of the future. Right? The 1930s saw the first trend away from immigration to the United States. There was more immigration out of the U.S. in the 30s than into it. And a surprising number, maybe not a surprising number, were going to the Soviet Union. So they said, that's where they got it together. I've seen the future and it works, Lincoln Steffens said, the great progressive reformer. Um, 
So you have people on the left glamorizing Stalin's Soviet Union. You have people, well, on the right or the not so right saying that Mussolini's got it right. right? It's a corporate, a corporate state where all the, all the various interests are, are harmonized. You found fewer and fewer people who wanted to defend the values put forward in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. But FDR made a point of defending if, if there was a single thing that FDR defended that he did not point to a founding document in, his, in, in calling for it, I, I'm not aware of it. He constantly used the language of the Declaration of Independence, of the Constitution, or of the Bible in saying this is what we need to do. We're not doing, he was always careful to assure people what we're doing, what we're, what we're doing is nothing radical, even when in some ways it may have been. But he always made, took pains and said, it's not really radical because, look here, this is justified here. Um, for instance, his, uh, his, his inaugural address, this will be page 111 in the, the evolving presidency. Okay, 109, sorry. The money changers, this is the, the third paragraph, the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to its ancient truths. And he starts talking about not radical reform, he's talking about restoration. I haven't gone through and counted how many times he uses the term restoration. All we're doing now is getting back to the way things ought to have been to begin with. We're going to get back to our faith in God. He uses... Yeah, I don't know that either Hoover or FDR were terribly religious. I, I don't. I don't believe they were. Uh, you know, Hoover was. Uh, Hoover was a was a Quaker. It, really, between the two of them, Hoover was probably the more the more devout and Christian. But you don't you don't hear Hoover making appeals to the Bible and appeals to religion in his in his public pronouncements. You heard it from FDR though. He used it all the time. He mentioned God, left and right, and he certainly does it in the uh, in the inaugural address. Um, you know, FDR, of course, was was a politician par excellence. Uh, Hoover never had served in an elective office before becoming president, but FDR had been state senator, assistant secretary of the Navy, uh, candidate for vice president. He'd been governor of New York. He knew how the game was played. And far more so than Hoover, FDR was willing to play the role of party leader as long as the party played on his terms. Yep. You know, I, I, when I read over that inaugural mm -hmm. address, I, I thought that famous cover of the New Yorker magazine where they have a picture of FDR. Exactly the one I was talking about. Right next to uh, Hoover looking mm -hmm. at Dower. And, and then I, I just kind of wonder if, if Hoover ever said anything about how he felt sitting there in the grandstand listening to FDR calling him a money changer and, and talking about all the talking about him and his administration in those words. You don't hear that very mm. often with uh, inaugurations today where where the uh, the president the new president gets up and publicly criticizes the previous administration the way FDR did. My understanding was that when it's reference to money changers he was not talking about he was not talking about Hoover. You don't think he was talking about him? No, he was talking about financiers in, in, in general. Um, 
So I don't know that Hoover ever made a, a response to that. Of course, you know, Hoover had nothing nice to say about FDR uh, or, or vice versa. Um, a real hatred had developed between the two guys. Uh, uh, for one thing, the first time that FDR was to meet with Hoover, Hoover kept him waiting, standing for a long time. And of course, FDR had the polio, so he was in these, these heavy braces. And after that, FDR never, FDR never forgave Hoover for that. And it's not clear that Hoover knew about FDR's situation. It was, it was so well hidden. Um, uh, but, but there was this, this, this mutual hatred that really worked against, uh, against uh, cooperation for those four months. Remember, it was, this, we're talking about a four-month interregnum at this point between an election and inauguration day. This became one of the big changes in the 1930s. So the, in the 1936 election, there was, there was far less time between, uh, uh, between, uh, 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 between election and inauguration. This four months was actually saw the worst of the depression hit, and the government was, was effectively paralyzed. Hoover could do nothing because Congress wasn't going to give him anything. Um, he was prepared to. In fact, there was there was sort of a sense that uh, among Democrats in general that we ought to, uh, as they would later say, immunize the estraton. Am I pronouncing that right? Do you know what that means? Make sure things got as bad as possible, so that when when your guy steps in and it improves, then you get more credit for it. Let, uh, you know, because even though things could get worse, we might, it might be necessary to have things get worse before they can get better. Um, and and you know, so Hoover knew we couldn't get anything from, from, uh, from, uh, from Congress. Hoover even said to FDR at one point, listen, let's issue a joint statement where to solve this bank crisis, we close the banks and, uh, and then, re then have, have investigations of them and then reopen them as bank, invest bank examiners have had a chance to go, go through their deposits and their, uh, their assets and liabilities. Um, there, there's this, this anecdote that uh, uh, FDR was uh, at a play um, and when he got this, uh, this message, this urgent message from Hoover and he, uh, he actually showed it to someone else and he laughed and he threw, it, threw the note away. Because he was going to work with Hoover, right? Because then, why, why let Hoover get any of the credit for it? And then as soon as FDR became president, he went and did exactly the same thing that, that Hoover had recommended. Now, you know, we could say FDR was a bastard for doing this, but you know, it made great, politically it made absolute sense. Why associate yourself with the outgoing, discredited administration when you have a chance to say, okay, when I start, everything is going to be new? Something else in his inaugural address that's, uh, that's often pointed to. And it's on, on page 111. His, his implied threat, near the bottom of 111, but in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of these two courses, and in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency, as great as the power that would be given me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. Here's the war, this is, what this is even more strongly than Hoover said, I'm, I'm going to ask for broad executive powers. Now, he says here, I'm going to ask Congress for it. He didn't say, I'm going to usurp these powers, I'm going to go to Congress and, and, and ask for them. But still, Congress had to be paying attention at that point. Congress, of course, was willing to give the president whatever he wanted in his first uh, in his first hundred days. And I'll tell you, the way that FDR acted on this bank thing was probably the best single thing he did as uh, as, as president. Right? Just like Hoover said it was going to do, it worked. People had confidence in the uh, in the banks again. 
And, and suddenly, this was, this was the first hopeful sign in the economy since October of 1929. And everybody said, it's FDR, the miracle man. FDR had no problems with Congress for the next four years, right? Because it was just assumed, because Congress didn't have any answers, right? The Democratic Congress that had been elected in, uh, uh, in, 19, in 1930, they were as clueless as Hoover. And, and really, you know, it's, as many historians have pointed out, the Democratic Party was not ideologically inclined toward, uh, toward, toward larger government at this point. I mean, there were Southern conservatives who were just as, at least as, 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 uh, as, as conservative and, and, and unwilling to embark on anything new as, as uh, the most high-bound Northeastern Republican. So we talk about how well FDR was able to play Congress. But you know, Congress was, this may have been less, less skill on FDR's part and more that after this initial success with the banks, Congress was willing to roll over and do anything that, anything that he said. Bills passed within 45 minutes, you know, all, virtually no debate whatsoever. If the president wants it, there, he's got it. And it happened to be a Democratic Congress, but FDR had supporters among the uh, Republicans as well. Guys like Robert La Follette, uh, George Norris in Nebraska, uh, Bert, uh, sorry, really was a Democrat, Gerald Nye of uh, North Dakota. These, these progressive Republicans uh, thought, that, uh, thought that FDR was terrific for a while. They changed their mind later on. Something else, FDR's uh, use of radio often talked about. Okay, again, the skillful president knows how to use, take advantage of, 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 of the media. Um, you know, it, this is a this is often a tangent a little bit, but I, I like telling the story anyway. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the uh, 1928 election between Hoover and Al Smith. And this was uh, Al Smith had a lot of liabilities in that campaign. Um, he had a divided party because he was anti-prohibition and the Democratic South was pro-prohibition. He was a Roman Catholic and Southerners, uh, Southern Democrats weren't too thrilled about that either. Well, the Midwesterners weren't either. But what's often not realized is uh, the kind of voice Al Smith had. You ever heard a recording of his voice? It wasn't so much high. You know what, I've got it on, on tape. Maybe I'll, I will, uh, or on CD, I, I can play it for you sometime, but I'll try to do my imitation of it. <coughs> Now let's look at the record. <laughs> Prohibition has begotten the racketeers. Uh, the bootleggers. The bootleggers have begotten the racketeers. And the, rest, the, boot, the racketeers have begotten organized crime. Okay, he, saw, he had this, this painful New York accent uh, and, this, and you know, it occasionally spiced up with a, uh, with a bit of Irish brogue. And, uh, and you know, Midwesterners and Southerners who would, who would have heard this on the radio. Oh, oh. You know, I'm convinced that Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't have been as popular as he was had radio been around during the day Teddy Roosevelt. You ever heard Teddy Roosevelt? Really squeaky little, like this is the bull moose? What I suppose? It, it, it sounds, this sounds strange. At first I thought when I was listening to it that it was, it was just the, the recording technology at the time. But I was sort of, no, that, that's really how the guy sounded. Um, so so he, uh, Hoover was, was better than that. I mean, Hoover at least had a, uh, had a, a moderate voice that, was in, uh, that had no discernible accents which would have worked against him. However, he was boring as hell. I mean, you listen to the guy on the radio, and his voice sounded good, but 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 he just droned on and on about the need for voluntary cooperation between the various branches of our civic organizations. And yes. Would you say the importance of 
mass communication of politicians came about during this era, not just in the United States, but also in the world, uh, maybe just stemming from Mussolini as well as uh, used radio in the Soviet Union later in Germany? Sure. I, uh, well, I mean, you could say that mass media goes back to the late 19th century and the big, and the big gigantic metropolitan papers. But the totalitarianism that's using right. this as a media. That's right. It was easier to use electronic media than it was to use uh, uh, to, to use the newspapers. Um, I'm sure Marshall McLuhan would have some uh, some theory. That, I mean, he does have a theory to explain why, but I'm not going to delve into communications theory right now. Sure. Yeah. You, you heard it. You heard it all over the uh, uh, all over the place. Japanese government used uh, used used radio, which meant success. Yeah. Was there a big third-party influence in the 32 election? Not, I mean, if not, I mean, if not, was there at least some part platform adopting some of their ideas? Uh, third party, you mean socialists? Yeah, socialists were around. Uh, there was more of a third party presence in 36 elections than 32. Uh, you know, there, there, there were always the, the socialists always fielded a, a, a fielded a, a candidate. Was it still Debs in 32? Was, was that? Okay. It was with Norman Thomas then. Okay. All right. I know 36. Norman Thomas was uh, was a candidate. I wasn't sure about 32. But uh, yeah, I don't know that there was that much of a uh, of a third party uh, third party vote. So you know, everyone's heard at least the, the fireside chats that he gave. This was crucial to this bank. Uh, even if Hoover had done the uh, had closed the banks. Would Hoover have been able to speak to the American people in a, in a plain language they could understand? Because you know, talk talk to anyone today about banking, and what are they going and, and, and how are they going to? What banks are closed? I, I don't get this. How assets and liabilities, huh? Well, FDR it was it was just amazing how he how he did this. I, I have that on tape somewhere too. Maybe I should have. Well, it goes on for too long, but uh, but still, people understood what he meant. Right? We're going to close them for a while. We're going to send out bank examiners. They're going to make sure which banks are sound. They're going to reopen. Most of them will reopen. And the ones that reopen are going to have the government stamp of approval so you know you can trust them. And they believed it. They said that the, the most successful uh, radio broadcasters could make it sound like they were speaking directly to you. Who is that there? Anyone heard of Father Coughlin? Man, he's a, he, this guy has a fascinating radio voice. I listen to him for uh, listen to him for hours. You know, there's a really good broadcasting voice now. You can you can uh, you can tell why he has he has fanatical followers. Is uh, Louis Farrakhan? You ever listen to the guy speak? Just this this mesmerizing voice. that Father Coughlin had it as well. You know, I remember when Patrick McCarran came down from the hills of Nevada. It was, it was, well, okay. Uh, but you know, radio would be an extremely powerful medium in the uh, in the hands of uh, of the right person. The New Deal accomplished nothing less than redefining the idea of what a right is. Someone up before uh, FDR said, well, "Here's this is what a right is. A right is something that government can't mess with." Under FDR, a right became something really a, something a benefit that you received from the government. Government was a source of rights, not the thing that government is to is is, is to stay stay out of. So government had an obligation to provide for the public, not simply to regulate in the public interest, which was the the, the, the progressive mantra. To get the government to accept a new definition of rights, 
FDR had to do a tremendous selling job. This is where FDR's essential, at least rhetorical, conservatism comes out. His constant appeal to tradition, you saw it in the, in, in the, uh, the, the, the inaugural address, the restoration, the restoring to our ancient truths. This is not some radical experiment. Social security is a prime example of this. When, when you think about it, it really is a, a, a radical kind of, a, kind of system. He sold it by saying, well, it, it, it's going to be funded out of contributions. It's going to come, contributions is what I call it, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's going to come out of your paycheck and then it's going to come out of your employer. Now, what, we always hear about the FDR's brain trust. Right, and their influence, and, 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 and right-wingers who want to attack FDR say, oh, it's all this brain trust. They've got the ear of the president, these, these professors. But, you know, the brain trust was, was mainly for show. FDR took the, you know, he listened to them and then did whatever, he, whatever it was he wanted them to do again. Or, or a famous FDR trick, he would get people who radically disagreed on, so, on something. And say, okay, you're locked in a room and then tell them, let, let me know when you've come out with something that satisfies both of you. And then once, once that had passed that test, he knew it was okay. But the brain trust hated the idea that Social Security was going to be funded by quote-unquote voluntary contributions. They wanted a, a European-style, cradle-to-grave, tax-funded welfare system. FDR was smarter than they were. He said, if you're going to sell this to the American people, you have to sell it like this. Because right? now it looks like it's, it at least looks like it's, it's you saving we are just encouraging you to say it. Uh, yeah, I said that the payroll taxes would give people, quote, a legal, moral, and political right to collect their pensions and their unemployment benefits. With those taxes in there, no damn politician can ever scrap my social security program. He's absolutely right. The third rail of American politics. We, I paid into the system my whole life. I, I, I have this money. This isn't welfare. This is a this is a, 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 a an entitlement. I'm just getting back the money that I put into it plus interest. Okay. So this is not a, this was not a radical. In a sense, it was a radical measure, but it was being sold in very conservative tones. He, as I said, Todd has talked about the Declaration of Independence, of the Constitution. <laughs> I say here 109. I don't remember what's on it, but it must be terribly important. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I already told, I told you about that. This is the restoration and the ancient truths. His fireside chat on Social Security. FDR says, it is the combination of the old and new that marks orderly, peaceful progress. Our new structure is a part of and a fulfillment of the old. All that we do seeks to fulfill the historic traditions of the American people. Unquote. How can you possibly oppose that? Just fulfilling the ancient promises, the historic traditions. There's something else I want to direct your attention to in the binder, pages 66 to 67. It's Henry Wallace on the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Now, you may have noticed that I, I, I was the guy, writer slash editor of this volume, who got this out of here. And that's how I push my own push my own stuff in this uh, in this seminar. But um, my project here. But I was supposed to take a, uh, for, for, a, for like 10 to 15 issues for each president, Hoover through Truman, uh, uh, concentrate on, on 10 to 15 issues, write a, 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 a couple of pages about the issue, then choose a, uh, choose a, a, a statement by the president defending his view, and then an, an, an opposing statement. I couldn't find a good FDR statement on 
the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Maybe I didn't look hard enough. So I found this one by Henry Wallace. And I regret, I regret putting that in there now because it really is un-Rooseveltian. FDR was all for the Agricultural Adjustment Act, but he never would have posed it in the terms that, that, uh, that, Henry, that, uh, that Wallace does here. And I don't know how much you know about Henry Wallace. This is, this is classic Henry Wallace, but it's not classic. It, wasn't, it was not classic Roosevelt. Uh, however, now I'm glad I put it in there for purposes of this, because then I get to point out the contrast to you. Uh, on, on, the, uh, on the bottom of 66, this bill follows a new and untrod path. The successful operation of it depends on the wholehearted cooperation of farmers, processors, and consumers. Has the time come when all elements of our society are willing to pull together to restore economic balance and attain social justice? Okay, the restore thing, was there's a little bit of FDR there. Um, and in the very last paragraph, this bill attempts a major social experiment. It looks toward a balanced social state. It is trying to subdue the habitual anarchy of a major American industry and to establish organized control in the interest not only of the farmer but of everybody else. I don't know how anyone hearing that would have thought, ooh, this is something I want to support. Right? Major social experiment, sign me up. That's not Roosevelt. Roosevelt didn't say, here, we're going to have a major social experiment. That never would have flown. And, and, and in fact, it wouldn't have been flown with FDR. Because I, I don't think this was just window dressing. I think in many ways FDR was conservative. He didn't, you know, he wanted to try things, but he always wanted to, to root what he tried in, in, in tradition. Yeah. I wonder if FDR was always had heart attacks from Wall Street on speaking tours and things like that. He was under the guru letters. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, Wallace was a, Wallace was a classic loose cannon. Uh, Why he was eventually dumped from the, uh, uh, from the ticket in favor of, uh, of Truman in 44. Um, but, I mean, he, was, he stayed on for a long time. And, and of course, the agricultural, uh, the, the, the agricultural Adjustment Agency was known for its divisiveness uh, between, uh, uh, between these, these old-fashioned the, the, old defenders of the farmer's interests and then these, uh, these lawyers. And the AAA lawyers, all the farmers are complaining about, because they they were all they were all from Ivy League schools. They were uh, what uh, what's them called the the happy hot dogs because they were they were Felix Frankfurter students. <laughs> so so, so there, there are these stories about how uh, how how, how his, uh, Felix Frankfurter's happy hot dogs would uh, would go out to the farm. These young guys, often Jewish, that which would still be an issue on the farm, and uh, and then tell the farmers that they had a family farm for generations. No, no, you need to, you can't do this. You need to do this, this, and this. So a lot of farmers were uh, would complain about the AAA. Of course, they'd cash those checks as soon as the AAA check arrived. And, um, so there was a, a but the triple but the AAA was always known for having this division between the old line farmers, activists, and the uh, and these uh, these these New Deal lawyers. Question. Yeah. Is there any truth to the, uh, the one of the things I think I've, someone had written, I don't recall who it was, but he, this individual, uh, a contemporary of ours, had written that FDR was sold finally on Social Security because there was an insurance guy in that inner circle of people developing Social Security who convinced them and finally Roosevelt that very few would collect. He liked that idea. In other words, there would be uh, an ample supply of money because odds were that after retirement you weren't going to collect very long on Social Security. You were going to die. You were, yeah, right. right. Is that true? I, I I hadn't heard this. Is anyone else? Um, no. I I, I, it, I mean, it would conflict with with at least one thing I know about Social Security, and one of the goals of it was to get people out of the labor market. 
free out these old old guys who've been working for for 40 years, get them out so we can have uh, so so we can give jobs to younger people. And and that would conflict because if they were going to die soon anyway, then why uh, uh, then, then why bother doing it? It's interesting. If if you can provide me with a citation, I will uh, uh, I, I will uh, uh, I'll look into it. But I hadn't heard it before. Now, if FDR was so conservative, why did he generate so much opposition from conservatives? Well, you know, uh, William Randolph Hearst started referring to him habitually as Stalin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, the stories of going down to the, you know, I'll be uh, going to hiss that man in the White House. Yeah. He's more like a class traitor. Yeah, okay. He's, he's, he's a wealthy guy, but here he is. Pandering to uh, pandering to the to the working classes, uh, you know, it, it, so, something I, I didn't mention when talking about the 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 conservatism in which he couched his arguments. Um, what, one of the most radical things to come out of the New Deal was uh, was the Wagner Act, which 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 gave uh, a required uh, uh, employers to recognize a union if his workers were informant and required them to bargain collectively. Um, it has got, it's gone down in history as being part of the New Deal, but it really, it really wasn't. I mean, FDR and his administration had virtually nothing to do with it. It came out of, it came from Robert Wagner, of a senator from New York. And, uh, and, and until almost the very end, FDR was on the fence about it. He didn't commit himself one way or the other. I think because he sensed that it really was kind of, uh, kind of radical and not in tune with the rest of his program. Of course, then when it became obvious it was going to pass very overwhelmingly, and, and uh, then FDR said, then he declared for it, and then after it, after it proved to be very popular, of course, he took, took credit for it. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but that, yeah, in a way, that's, that's a, almost an exception to, a, to what, was, what was largely a conservative uh, 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 movement that the deal was. Um, of course, FDR was a good enough politician to recognize that when Businessmen and, uh, and and the wealthy in general criticized him that, that this was actually a good thing for him, right? He could go and say, "Hey, economic royalists! What brilliant phrase economic royalist was!" Now you're you're hearkening back to Andrew Jackson, or even back to the back to the, the founding generation. Right? We're fighting against we're fighting against monarchists who want to have a tyranny of uh, a tyranny of wealth, and of course this worked brilliantly in 1936. In spite of the third, you know, the, this third-party effort that, that ended up not amounting to much, so the whole story of that uh, of the Union Party is kind of a, an, an interesting one. As, as, as often happens with third-party movements like uh, like Perot's, you end up having every crackpot, you know, every every, every crackpot group of the letterheads says, "Oh, I'm going to sign on with you. Here's a chance for real change." So the Union Party became a, a movement for you know, any, everything from agrarian radicals to to fascists. Uh, uh, Big Bill Thompson, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy. Um, he, was, uh, he was mayor of Chicago in the 1920s. He was the guy who, uh, running for office, said that the, running for mayor of Chicago, he said, well, if King, if, if King George doesn't mind his own business, I'll punch him right in the snoot. You know, as if he was running against the King of England in the, in, in the mayoral race of Chicago. Of course, all the ethnic groups, the, the Irish and the Germans in Chicago, all said, oh, we like, uh, uh, we like Big Bill Thompson, but his career by this time was all washed up. And uh, nevertheless, he he found uh, a platform by uh, by running for governor on the Union Party ticket. So you had all kinds of weirdos involved in this. Um, of course, we we know that after uh, after the 1936 landslide, the New Deal started falling apart. Right? A whole variety of things happened here. 
the uh, infamous court packing incident. Understandable, he was, he was getting the, the AAA get struck down. Major parts of the na of, of of the National Industrial Recovery Act get struck down. And in his entire first term, he never got a he never got an opportunity to appoint anyone to the Supreme Court. And he was he was just he was anxious to do this and get some of his uh, some of his guys on there. So he decides to go forward with his uh, judicial restructuring plan. And again, when he puts uh, when he when he puts forward this this idea, 128, 129, he 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 once again returns to the themes that there's nothing radical about this. All I'm doing is is what people have done in the past. Is it a dangerous precedent for the, near the bottom of 128? Is it a dangerous precedent for the Congress to change the number of, ju of the justices? The Congress has always had and will have that power. The number of justices has been changed several times before in the administrations of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, both signers of the Declaration of Independence, Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, and Ulysses S. Grant. So really, he was, he was pitching this as, uh, this is, this is a, a, a temporary problem. We just happen to have all these old guys on here uh, who, who, do or, who are legislating. By the way, here's FDR's classic statement against judicial activism. You wouldn't hear, you would hear the conser hear conservatives saying in the, uh, in, uh, later on in the 20th century. He's attacking it here. So on the face of it then, it shouldn't have been all that radical, right? It's just, there's no never set in the Constitution how many how many uh, justices there could be. What went wrong? And remember, this is this is FDR. This is this isn't just any garden variety politician. This is a guy who who had his way with Congress at every turn. And after 1936, I mean, you know, it was hard to find a Republican in the in the uh, in the House or the Senate. The Democrats control it like as they would as any part as as, as as perhaps no party has ever dominated a uh, a, a Congress. Violated the separation. clearly violated the sacred principle separation of how he stepped over his bounds. Right, well, okay, that was an argument that was that, that was often heard that that he messed with uh, that, that now he it really looked like he was stepping beyond his bounds and trying to create a, a compliant court for his own agenda. Uh huh. Given him a joint opponent in uh, Charles Evans Hughes. Okay, certainly. Uh, looking back, this was this was a time of giants on the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, Louis Brandeis was still there. What was devastating was when Louis Brandeis himself said, "This is you're messing with you know you're, this this is this is something you shouldn't be involved in." In fact, they took issue with uh, with with Roosevelt's suggestion that well, the problem is these these poor old fellows they. They have so much work. They're overworked. So this is this is really for their own good. Louis Brandeis, who, in addition to being the most liberal member of the Supreme Court, was the oldest, took umbrage at this. Said, "Well, wait a minute. You know, having more justices isn't going to ease up our workload. If anything, it's going to create more." Okay, so that, that's part of the reason he ran up against very spirited opposition from the Supreme Court. Ah. Go back to Title 51. Madison says that the ambition of one branch was the ambition of another, regardless of party. It's just the power of the legislature versus the power of the executive. Pure absolute power. There's no way that the legislature can allow the president to start packing courts to advance his political agenda. That's right. Congress was not going to let itself get rolled on this one. It didn't matter how big a majority the Democrats had. Indeed, the Republicans wisely sat back and let the Republicans let the Democrats tear each other apart on this. Okay. 
For one thing, FDR had gotten just a bit arrogant on this uh, on this issue. He didn't even take the time to consult with uh, Democratic leaders. So, so you know, this is why he often gets too much credit for being a, a leader of his party. He was able to enforce discipline over his party for that 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 initial four or five years of his presidency, because this was a or four years early, because this was because. He had, they had no ideas, and, and he seemed to have something, and the bank thing worked, and so they were willing to go along with him. But there was a limit to that. Also remember that after four years of the New Deal, and after a lot of initial confidence, the economy hadn't gotten all that much better. So people had to start thinking, you know, yeah, we'll vote for him because he's better than a uh, better than a Republican, but still. You know, think about it. See, the guy, the the, the, uh, the Franklin Roosevelt of 1936-37 was not the was not the miracle man of 1933 and 34. So it's a little harder for him to to to, uh, uh, to sell this. And then not consulting Congress, well, that's a slap in the face. Right? If Congress been finding out about this in the newspaper that the uh, that, that, that FDR is going is, uh, wants to wants to reform the Supreme Court. So you know the charges of that he was packing the court came up pretty quickly and. But the opposition came from members of his own party, and again, he can't. So he can't control his own his, his party on this issue. It's just after that, or really when the when the when the uh, the noise was still going on about court packing, that he came forward with his executive organization plan. That this bill was that was really a victim of bad timing, more than anything else. Now, executive reorganization had long been considered a nonpartisan issue. Hoover had talked about executive reorganization. Why do you need executive reorganization? Why, why would you have needed it by uh, certainly by the, by the mid thirties? Had so much stuff to deal with. So many agencies. Sure, yeah. yeah, and they weren't all New Deal agencies either. They're, they're, these were agencies that had been building up since the, the Progressive era. I mean, even some of them even even before. So all these agencies and departments running around. How is how is one guy supposed to supposed to manage all this stuff? Especially when he has virtually no virtually no staff. You know, staff to open mail and stuff, but but uh, uh, but but not really a, not really a policy staff. Well, this is a, this is a problem. So we have the, he, he he gathers the Brownlow committee and they issue their uh, they, they issue their recommendations. We want six new assistants for the president. By the way, how many of you uh, watch the uh, the show uh, The West Wing? I love that show. I, you know, I know. At least once, I, I want to throw something at the TV screen when I'm watching it. But I, a show that's that smart, that well written, and well acted, I just love it. Anyway, this is the origins of the West Wing. Right? These are the guys who were who who, uh, who would eventually become uh, well, initially the bill uh, bill failed in 1939. The Executive Reorganization Act of that year added these uh, added these assistants. These were supposed to be guys with. Uh, Oh, how did the committee put it? A passion for anonymity. Right? They're not going to be people who are out in front of the uh, out in front of the cameras. They're going to be working behind the scenes. They're going to be professionals. They're not going to be you know partisan. Uh, uh, they're not going to be partisan politicians. So so here is uh, here's again the progressive idea that uh, politics is too important to be left to the politicians. The experts ought to handle it. Executive reorganization initially was a complete failure. I mean, Congress wouldn't pass it. Even Robert Wagner voted against executive reorganization. Right? You can't count on Robert Wagner 
who could he count on in, in, in the Senate? He was, he, was, uh, uh, he, he was one of the most loyal New Dealers in, the, uh, in that body. And as I said, it was mainly a victim of, of bad timing. It came out, it was announced right about the same time as judicial reorganization. And you know, anything, any proposal in 1937 that had the word reorganization and the alarm bells went off. It's a dictator bill. That's what they call it. So the same President Roosevelt who's trying to create a compliant Supreme Court is trying to take direct control over the various agencies and departments. And Congress had always had a certain say in how these agencies and departments would operate. And good God, if he really exercised control over these agencies and departments, we might lose patronage. Can't have that. So it's, uh, it, it went, and, and even when it was reintroduced in 1939, it was a much watered-down version. It included the administrative assistance, but, uh, uh, but did not give the extent of, of presidential control over the agencies and departments that the 1937 bill had. And of course, this would be an ongoing problem. Right? The, 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 these agencies and departments would be uh, would, would would end up being a pain in the neck for every president who followed uh, who followed FDR. And as uh, as I'll be talking about uh, later, uh, LBJ and, and Nixon uh, would be would have particular problems with them. I, I say something else about uh, or something about foreign policy. Um, FDR, uh, FDR was, uh, was, was assailed for wanting to exercise greater control over foreign policy than previous presidents had. Uh, his, whole, his whole step-by-step approach toward increasing aid to Great Britain is an example of that. But what is, uh, what is often forgotten about in, in traditional accounts is the Supreme Court decision in 1936 that made all of this possible. Um, you know about the, neutral, the neutrality acts? This was a classic, uh, a classic attempt by Congress to, uh, to well, you know, they say generals always want to fight the last war. This was an attempt by Congress to avoid the last war. So how, why do we get in? Well, let's see, it was rich people who wanted to travel on ocean liners, on British ocean liners, it was arms merchants, and it was international bankers. It was all big plot. So what do we do? Well, we pass laws that say if a war breaks out, we're going to make it illegal to but well, no, if you travel on a foreign passenger liner, you do so at your own risk. You make it illegal to loan money to any country at war, and you make it illegal to sell weapons to any country at war. For, you know, so, so great. If, world, if there's a repeat of World War One, the U.S. will stay out. Um, this, was a, this was a challenge. There was, there was a challenge to this act by Curtis Wright Export Corporation. There were arms merchants. They saw a war. They wanted to be able to sell weapons. Right? That's what arms merchants do. The Neutrality Act stood in the way. And so they sued. I mean, so they, so they challenged this and they challenged this in court. Went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that the Neutrality Act is okay. If the president has this authority to stop arms sales, to stop loans, to, do, to, to really enforce all of the, uh, all of the, different, uh, uh, the different provisions of the Neutrality Act. The decision was written by one of these conservative justices that gave, F, that, you know, that gave FDR so many headaches. But on this issue, uh, Justice Sutherland saw, the pre- saw things the president's way. Page 121 in, in here. And really, 
What the Supreme Court is doing is, is to a certain extent, settling a debate that had been going on for uh, for a long time. I mean, who has, who who is really responsible for foreign policy? Most agree, would have agreed that it was that there was some sort of that the executive had certain rights in this in this realm, but that the legislative branch had to be involved as well. But United States v. Curtis Wright Export Corporation clearly says that it's the executive that's going to have the preponderance of the power here. Um, on uh, near the bottom of 121, not only as we have shown is the federal power over external affairs in origin and essential character different from that over internal affairs, but participation in the exercise of the power is significantly limited. In this vast external realm, with its important, complicated, delicate, and manifold problems, the president alone has the power to speak or listen as a representative of the nation. He makes treaties with the advice and consent of the Senate, but he alone negotiates. Into the field of negotiation, the Senate cannot intrude, and Congress itself is powerless to invade. This is the strongest statement that had been made for saying that foreign policy is something that the president does. One of the reasons why people say, well, the War Powers Act would be unconstitutional, flies in the face of, of this, which, which clearly gives, uh, gives, gives, uh, gives precedence to the power of the president. FDR made liberal use of this, this power, negotiated the Destroyers for Bases deal in 1940 with Great Britain, and basically signing over destroyers. This is after his lawyers consulted him that, well, there has to be a quid pro quo because uh, uh, otherwise you can't, the president just can't give away, uh, can't give away destroyers. Um, so the U.S. got bases in, uh, in exchange for it. Used it there. Now he went to uh, he went to uh, to Congress for approval of uh, of lend-lease, but here his lend-lease it's hard to imagine a bigger grant of power to a, a to a president. What did lend-lease say? Sorry. The president decides what would be lend or leased or sold. Not only what would be lent or leased, but. <laughs> <coughs> uh, to to whom? Right? The president would make it would make a judgment as to uh, as to whether to the defense of a particular country was vital to U.S. national uh, U.S. national interests. And if the if the president made that determination, then he could give uh, he could give the country virtually everything, and everything from blankets to uh, blankets to bombers. So no, it could be extended. It was, it was, it could and was extended to China, to the Soviet Union, which raised a lot of eyebrows. Now we're in the business of bankrolling Stalin. Interestingly, here again with the, uh, with, with lend-lease, there was an effort uh, when putting it before Congress to couch it in, uh, in 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 tradition. Anyone know what bill number it was? 1776. House Resolution 1776. Right, that was, that was a brilliant little move. How do you oppose that? And the title of the bill was A Bill to Defend the United States. And one of the first things that people who attacked it said was, I don't want to be it a bill to, uh, to, to destroy American defense so Great Britain can maintain her empire over millions of enslaved, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, I wanna, I'll, I'll conclude by, uh, by saying a little about... Uh, oh, uh, before I conclude by saying a little about something else, I will say that about World War II. Um, and it'll just be a recommended book to you. Uh, Thomas Fleming, uh, The New Dealer's War. Very interesting. Uh, it, it, it really, 
it really makes clear to what extent FDR was not fully in control during, during the war. By then, his health had just gotten so bad that he was, he was virtually a non-entity in the White House. And who was running things? Well, Henry Wallace, to a certain extent. That's a frightening thought. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, oh gosh. Uh, I'm sorry, Marshall. You know, the, the, the Marshall it was probably pretty good. A pretty good thing to have, have happened. But, but it was it was basically the people in the second rank who were uh, who were directing the government's affairs and, and just and, and just the inside scoop on uh, on all the maneuverings within the agencies uh, and, and and just the discussion of what this war is supposed to be about. Right? Henry Wallace had pretty clear ideas on what he thought the war was for and. George Marshall would not necessarily have uh, have agreed with, and indeed most Americans probably would not have agreed with either. Uh, so I, I just uh, will, will recommend that you uh, that, that you check that out. It was amazing how much power flowed into the hands of the presidency during World War II, when the president was virtually incapacitated for uh, for a great deal of the time. Um, uh, certainly, you know, just like World War One, and this is this is the source of the, the Higgs ratchet effect thesis. That whenever you have a, the bigger the war, the uh, the greater the, uh, the 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 power that flows to the government in general and to the uh, and to the to the presidency in particular. The results of the New Deal, uh, just very briefly. Um, really, when it comes to the economy overall, the New Deal didn't have too much of a, 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 an effect, at least to a positive effect. The economy remained sluggish until 1939, 1940, when British, when, when, when British orders of American goods started to, uh, to bring about revival. Why was this recovery so slow to come? It's, it's worth asking. Uh, and one of the reasons, I said, that, I said that FDR had a better grasp than Hoover about the irrational aspects of, uh, of, of depression and recovery. Hoover had no idea this was a problem to be solved like a math problem. FDR realized that you had to restore confidence and to a certain amount that, that, was, that confidence was nothing that, you could, that could be restored by showing numbers. It was just something by projecting a sunny, atmosphere, uh, a sunny attitude and, and, uh, and encouraging people, uh, people to spend. But what FDR didn't understand was to what extent that involved increasing the confidence of the biggest players in the economy. That is, the very big businessmen and, uh, and, and, and capitalists and wealthy people that he demonized by the 1936 campaign. It's one thing to tell the worker that it's okay, you can go use the banks, you, can, you ought to go spend your money, but the economy's not gonna go very far if the people who really have the money to invest are afraid that they're not gonna see what happens, I mean, they're not gonna get any, any, uh, any profits from their money, that the rules are gonna change on them. I try to explain to my students, if you got, uh, uh, if you were in the uh, fourth inning of a game of baseball and suddenly it's declared that the rules are going to change, uh, you would probably not want to play that game very often. Right? If, if the rules are going to cha keep changing it, keep changing in the middle. Uh, this is something that FDR never grasped. And historians are, are finally starting to, uh, uh, to get away from their, their godlike treatment of FDR. Even people who like FDR are starting to say, well, in the end, this campaign of economic royalists and all that, that may have been very good politics. It was very good politics. It wasn't very good economics because you, you were scaring the wealthy into keeping their money at home, not investing in the stock market, not expanding their businesses, not hiring new people. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Roosevelt was making anti-business remarks constantly, saying that the banks and the corporations were the ones who were responsible for the Depression, so they have to be the ones to pay for it. FDR carried out personal vendettas against individual businessmen. He used the uh, well, what was the, the earliest early version of the Internal Revenue Service. It wasn't the modern IRS. 
to harass people in the FDR kept an enemies list. Journalists he didn't like soon found their way out of jobs. Uh, he, he particularly had it in for Andrew Mellon, the uh, Secretary of uh, Secretary of the Treasury in, uh, in the 1920s. Uh, the, uh, the the uh, the the uh, Revenue Department pursued uh, pursued Mellon to his grave, uh, even after a grand jury refused to indict him. He hadn't done anything wrong. Clearly, though, the New Deal. FDR and the New Deal changed the attitude that, that Americans had toward their government and toward the institution of the, presidents, of the presidency. It came to be expected now that the federal government was not just going to curb the, uh, the excesses of, of, of unrestrained capitalism, which was the progressive mission, but now it was responsible for the overall health of the economy. Even Republicans came to accept this, uh, uh, this premise. And it's, uh, it, it's something that's widely accepted by everyone now. We judge a president by well, how's the economy doing in there? Clinton was pretty. Clinton must have been good because the economy was uh, because the economy did well. Uh, obviously, it established at least the or the origins of the of the modern welfare state and the, this principle that the federal government had an obligation to step in to assist the poor. Now, FDR had always said that he opposed what he called the dole, direct welfare payments. He said this constantly. He was going to rob people of their uh, uh, rob people of their initiative. So that when Ronald Reagan campaigning in 1980 praised would praise FDR, you know, you know liberals said all oh, this. You know, this, this is completely uh, this is this is completely disingenuous. He's just, he's just lying. But there was a, there was some truth to that. FDR had opposed these uh, uh, direct payments in most cases. He was even warned about the effects of that. Uh, FDR much preferred putting men to work on public works projects. Than, than sending relief checks. Now, during FDR's administration, the federal government spent about $14 billion on, on public works and employed at one time about 8.5 million people. But then people realized that it's a lot cheaper to send welfare checks than it is to put people, uh, put people to work. Uh, obviously, the federal bureaucracy dramatically increased in size and power in the, uh, in the New Deal. The executive branch became even more unwieldy, as, as I said, presidents after him would constantly have problems dealing with these uh, various agencies. And of course, there, there, there was something that, that was lost in all this, the idea that, the idea that, that Congress was, was basically supposed to make the laws, right? The, they had a greater power from the people, but, but less and less, Congress wasn't making laws. Congress was passing timetables and spending money, but, but the real rules were being made by these agencies. And it wasn't always clear who these agencies were answerable to. In a sense, they're answerable to the president, I guess, president, I guess because they're hired, to, they, you know, they were picked by the president and perhaps uh, approved by the Senate. Um, but as the bureaucracy became larger, as these agencies multiplied, it became harder to see to whom they were really responsible. And also, I mean, what, one of the nice things about patronage is at least you know people get thrown out as, as, as things as, uh, as as offices changed uh, changed hands. But uh, you had these career civil servants who were not really tied to any particular candidate, and they build their own empires. And uh, and, and we, you really started to see the effects of this in the 19, uh, 1930s. Um, okay, and, and, and in short, Roosevelt really set a precedent of, of extreme presidential power. He was the guy who institutionalized the modern, pres the modern presidency 
that, uh, that, that Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson put into place. Um, and, uh, and Roosevelt's successors would certainly make the most of that. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs, at tah.org webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.